0: So, five and a half years ago or so, I walked into my first theology class at DTS on campus. Uh, I was very excited and nervous all at the same time because, uh, first and foremost, I was never a great academic student. And then second, I was going to be pursuing the study of things that I was not familiar with or an expert at as I was learning about the doctrines of God and theology and things like that. And um, As I walked into the class and sat down, uh, after all the other students arrived, the professor walked in and proceeded to go over the syllabus with us, letting us know what our coursework would be, all of the readings, all of the assignments, the tests, and I was like, why did I sign up for this? And after that, he decided, okay, well, we got time. Let's dive into our first section of coursework. Let's start studying. And uh, he starts teaching, and I'm taking notes frantically. I'm not someone that likes to take notes on the computer. I like to write everything, which I don't know why because my handwriting is terrible, I never know what I write down afterwards. But in the midst of all this, uh, there there was a student that was asking questions throughout the entire lesson, and and after a while I started to realize that this student's specific questions were more not like what, when, why, or how, but look, I know this, but what do you think? And after a little while I was like, hmm, he's not the professor, why is he talking so much? And it was actually kind of discouraging to me and frustrating and annoying because I was there to learn from the professor, not the student. You see, the student didn't have authority over the class. It was the professor that did. And thankfully, the professor, in a kind, gently way, put the student in his place uh, without embarrassing him or doing anything to to disgrace him uh, and said, let's just talk about this afterwards. Yeah, I share this story because all of us have dealt with that student in our lives, whether it's in a work setting or a school setting or whatever. And and I believe that ties in perfectly with what Jesus is dealing with in the section of passage we're covering today in Mark 12, verses 13 to 44. See, last week uh, or two weeks ago, Pastor John was teaching on Jesus going into the temple and the Sanhedrin, sending people and other religious leaders to test Jesus and to call him out because they didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't like that Jesus was saying, I am the son of God. God has given me authority to come and reconcile all of mankind to him. They didn't like that to the point to where Jesus even used a story, a parable of the tenants to illustrate what was going on with these so-called religious leaders That their disobedience and unbelief ultimately will keep them out of the kingdom of God because they refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the cornerstone, as the Son of God. And so the narrative continues today as we dive into verses 13 to 17. We're going to be in three different sections, but uh, Jesus is challenged differently by different people uh, through questions they're asking. And so it starts off like this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You know, of all the questions to ask Jesus, we're going to ask him a tax question. It just shows that they're already missing the point. Remember, the Sanhedrin are the religious leaders, and they don't like Jesus, so they send these two specific groups, the Pharisees, who are the uh, uber-intensely religious rule followers, and the Herodians, who really aren't a religious group at all. They're more of a political group that supported both Rome and Herod. And the interesting thing is these two groups did not like each other. They were like the Capulets and the Montagues, the, the Sochus and Greasers and Jets and Sharks. They did not like each other, but they had a common enemy in Jesus that they would try to unite against and embarrass in front of all of his followers. And so they come up to him and they ask him a question with flattery. Usually when someone leads into a discussion with flattery, there's already uh, negativity behind it. It's a bad thing. Even to the point in Proverbs 26:28, it says that a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. You see, they tell Jesus, oh, we believe you're true. And kind of in that, I guess that's why I imagine how they would be talking. But, but when in their flattery and sarcasm, they're actually acknowledging that Jesus is true. That he doesn't show favoritism. That he is a man of integrity. And so they're just confirming everything even more so when they're trying to embarrass him. But then to the question, do we pay our taxes or not? You see, the tax that was being questioned was the poll tax. And it was this tax that everyone that was under the rule of Rome had to pay. And they had to pay specifically with a silver denarius, which is uh, a form of currency in the Roman world. And uh, that is all that Caesar would accept because he knew the value of that money. This coin was worth about a day's wage in total. And so they were looking for an answer that would cause Jesus problems. Again, do we pay taxes? They wanted to trap Jesus because if he said yes, He would make the crowds and the followers uh, go against him because Israel didn't like being under the rule of Rome. But if he said no, he would be guilty immediately of treason. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? He says, come on, bro, seriously? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And when they brought him one and said to him, he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they responded, Caesar's. And Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and everyone marvelled at him. You see, Jesus, being the son of God having authority, knew their intentions. And so he knew that he was going to give an answer that would blow their mind. And he says, "Bring me this coin." And they're like, "Okay, here's your coin." He's like, "Okay, whose image do you see on it?" And Caesar, because the Caesar at the time, this image would be pressed onto the coin when it was going around. And these groups, these two groups, they wanted Jesus to answer uh, kind of uh, with an either-or. But he answers with a both-and instead. You see, Jesus is confirming that you do have a loyalty or an allegiance to your local government. You are to submit to their authority. But not just their authority, but also the authority of God. In Romans 13, Paul writes specifically that God created two institutions, the church and the state. They each have their separate responsibilities. They have their roles they need to fulfill. They have things on how they need to live. And so the, the, the Israelites, they didn't, the Jews, they didn't like paying this tax. But Jesus was making it clear, guess what? Under Rome, they're providing you services too that you may be unaware of, such as basic law and order, infrastructure and protection. That's kind of like us today, right? April 15th around the corner. Yay, tax day! Right? Lots of lots of laughter here. But the, but the reality is we pay taxes because our government gives us support in things such as firemen, policemen, public education, freeways, except for 290, obviously. But not just that, but also like uh, programs for uh, the marginalized community, all these things we pay into to give back to the government what they pay to use to take care of us. And so because of that, we do submit to the government's authority. And as believers, we do submit to that. But again, not just government. We submit to God even more importantly. That is, we must always remember that, that God is bigger than the state. There's a higher responsibility that we need to live into. We need to give God back what is his, which is our lives, our freedom, our things, and our love. And if you look up here, this is what a denarius looks like. And so whose image is stamped on there again? Caesars, yes. All right, so this next picture, whose image is stamped on these folks? God, right? Because we are created in God's image. So the coins that have Caesars pressed on them, we give that back to him because that's his, but we press, we are made in God's image. So we, as his created children, as Imago Dei, give back our lives to him. That is the natural rule of this. And so in the end, yes, we submit to local government, and more importantly, we submit to God everything. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of like, oh, we just got schooled. And so they walk off. Zaharan's not done yet, though. They're like, okay, well, we're going to uh, send in the next guys. Let's send in the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees, they came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. You see, they, they ask this question specifically. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the Sadducees, these other religious leaders. The, the, this was a smaller group of people. They were urban. They were wealthy. They were educated. And they had some of the worst theology you'll ever see in the Scriptures. Because they don't believe in the future, future resurrection of the body. They don't believe in angels as given in Acts 23, eight. And then when it comes to Scripture, the only books they recognize or would submit to are the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so this question they pose is actually based out of Deuteronomy 25. It's based on a leverate law of ma- marriage. excuse me. And it says, this law was given to provide descendants for a man who died childless so that the family line could maintain its property. So when they ask the question, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Well, Jesus, first of all, knowing that they don't believe in the resurrection, why on earth would they pose a question about the resurrection? Because they're trying to stir the pot. They're trying to distract the people. And Jesus tells them, you guys have missed it all completely. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You see, their lack of belief in the resurrection, they deny the power of God. Because they only read the first five books and recognize that as authoritative, they don't know the scriptures. Jesus states, for when they rise from the dead. Not if they rise from the dead. When they rise, because it will happen. The resurrection will happen again. And he says, we will be like angels. Quick side note, being like angels does not mean we are angels. We are not going to be angels. We will be like angels. And Jesus says that because the angel was created to worship God, just like we were created to worship God. And so in eternity, when we're in heaven, there's going to be no need for spousal relationships or to create and multiply and fill the earth. Because we're going to be in glory. We're going to be so uh, distracted, not even distracted, we're going to be so excited to be in the presence of God. In eternity, we're going to be in the presence of our creator and we're going to be singing like in Revelation 14.3. We're going to be eternally joyful like in Psalm 1611. We're going to see the beauty of God as in Psalm 52. We will be united as one in Ephesians 1.10. We will be perfect in 1 Corinthians 13.10. We will be lit up by God's glory in Revelation two five. We will be holy, Revelation 21.27. And all because God will be at the center of it all as in Revelation 4.2. You see, that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. The afterlife is going to be completely different from this present life. But Jesus, being the son of God and having authority and being absolutely brilliant, takes it to their turf. He tells them this. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He goes and says, okay, well, I know you guys read the first five books of Scripture, and so let me take you to Exodus, what Moses wrote. When Moses, when he's interacting with the burning bush, and God is telling Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. To understand that, if there was no afterlife, in Jewish vernacular, they would have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But no, Saying I am means that you do not cease to exist. And so that passage right there fully illustrates that those three men are still alive because they're resurrected. We don't cease to exist after death. Because our God is a God of the living. We will live forever. But again, the Sadducees, they don't know scriptures because they don't acknowledge all of it. It's scary because we can easily become like a Sadducee in that standpoint if we're only going to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to give up to God. We're only going to choose to believe this specific session, but we're not going to live into this section, and uh, this section I just don't even feel like dealing with. We can't be like that. We don't want to be like the Sadducees. We want to recognize all of Scripture. The Sadducees don't know the power of God because of their lack of belief in the afterlife, and the resurrection. They They don't believe that. And so today we might be like, well, Jonathan, I... I believe in the afterlife. I believe in the resurrection. So I do understand the power of God. Possibly not. Because if you are living your life now in fear, in worry, in anxiety, in stress, in anger, you are not understanding the power of God. Because he tells us not to live in that state. And so in order to understand the scriptures, it's very very simple. We need to read it. We need to read the Bible if we want to understand the scriptures, we need to open it up. If we want to see God's power, we must open the scriptures because we can see God's power on display. Like in Genesis when he creates everything. When Moses parts the Red Sea. When is swallowed by a fish and spit up. When Samson defeats the Philistines with a simple jawbone. When Lazarus is raised back to life. When Saul becomes Paul. When the church grows. And when new heaven and new earth are here and we are fully glorified. We can see the power of God in the scriptures. But if you don't open it up, you won't see it. We need to open up our Bibles. Now the Sadducees are like, oh, okay, we just got schooled. They go off. And then next, the next question, you have a third challenger. Comes up this scribe. A scribe is a teacher of the law. They would fall into, like, the religious leaders as well. And this man, though, his approach is very different. He asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And in his approach, he's humble because there's something different. He's not coming in a, hostile, uh, in a hostile way. He wants, he's truly seeking, trying to understand who is this Messiah? Who is this Jesus? And so, like we all do in typical fashion, we like to know what's the greatest, right? What's, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? What's the best type of food? What's your favorite restaurant? Is Whataburger or In-N-Out better? We have to know the greatest, and, that's, and this guy asks, because if he knows what the greatest commandment is, then he can live fully into that, then he will please God. And so Jesus immediately uh, quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, And with all of your strength. You see, he wants the scribe to completely understand that loving the Lord with your heart is more than just saying, I love God. But it's loving him with your entire being, your entire essence. Loving the Lord with all of your soul means that your spirit inside you is ablaze and on fire for him. And not lukewarm and not tepid. Loving him with all your mind is seeking to use your complete understanding to love God. And then loving with all your strength is using every muscle fiber and ounce of strength that you have in you in order to live for God in your actions. That is what Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 say right here. It's, it's known as the Shema, which is the basic statement of faith that the Israelites would repeat on a daily basis in order to help them remember they have a purpose on this earth. R.C. Sproul, Sproul says, Our love for God is to be an affection that is surpassed by no other affection, It is to be an undiluted, unmixed love for God. But Jesus doesn't just stop right there with Deuteronomy. He says, the second greatest command is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus now is quoting Leviticus 19, 18. And if you look in Leviticus 19, God gives a lot of specifics on how you love and care for your neighbor, how you love and care for those around you, such as caring for the the poor, in verse 10. Not stealing and not lying to them in verse 11. Being fair with your employees and coworkers in verse 13. Caring for the deaf, caring for the blind, caring for the marginalized in 1914. Dealing justly with all in verse 15. Avoiding slander in verse 16. Not putting these people's lives, not putting your neighbor's lives in danger in verse 16. Being reasonable in verse 17 and not taking revenge In verse 18, these are all how God says to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19. And so the scribe is kind of, okay, I'm kind of tracking, I'm kind of following. And the scribe responds, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. See, the scribe gets it. He's recognizing that loving the Lord with everything and loving your neighbor is more than just following the set of rules and traditions that you are given, that it's about a relationship. It's about actual love, a sacrificial kind of love. And the scribe is starting to recognize that I don't do this on a daily basis. You see, this was given in the law. They're supposed to do this every day. And if you don't, you fall short, you sin, and you need to give offerings to reconcile for your sins. But Jesus is saying no, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says that, he's not saying, keep, you're almost there, keep working, keep trying harder, keep trying to earn your way into being with God. No, he's saying, keep seeking. Because all of these questions you're asking and how you're understanding these answers I'm giving is showing you in the end that Jesus, me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. And so in an encouraging and loving way, he's like, keep seeking my brother. You're going to get there soon because you already get it. Loving God with everything. Loving your neighbor, everyone around you. What a great challenge and scary responsibility for us as the church, right? I pray that we all do that all times, loving those around us. And so now, Jesus, having answered three questions that would supposedly challenges his authority, right, two from two hostile groups and one from a true person seeking, he now decides, okay, I'm going to ask everyone a question. And he says this in verses 35 to 37, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord so how was he a son and the great throng heard him gladly because Jesus basically just dropped a bomb on them that was going to blow their minds very similar to the movie I love the movie gladiator it's one of my all-time favorite movies and in one scene uh, Russell Crowe is defeating foe after foe that the, 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 the emperor is throwing at him Right, the emperor threw literally tigers at him and chariots with spears and knives and swords on him and then multiple warriors, and he would disband of them one by one and in victory. And finally, one time in his victory, he throws a sword down and shouts out to the crowd, Are you not entertained? I would liken that to right now when Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Because he has everyone's attention. He's confirming that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And how so? Through scripture. You see, the, the Jews, uh, based on prophecies in the Old Testament, they were anticipating a coming Messiah. They knew a Messiah would come, but their definition of a Messiah was too small. You see, the scribes had taught that the Messiah was going to be this man that would come as a conquering king, a military leader that would help them overthrow throne and give them freedom. So they got a couple of things right. Yes, he was from the line of David, and yes, he was a man. But again, the Messiah is more than that. Their their view on the Messiah was inadequate. And so David goes in to clarify for them. He quotes Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. They all know this psalm because they were anticipating the coming Messiah. But he reads to them a little slower. Again, I'm going to read it to you all. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see, in the Hebrew, the first, the Lord, is Yahweh. And the second, my Lord, is Adonai. And so it's saying, Yahweh said to Adonai. It, he uses this because it wouldn't be God said to himself. So right now, he's illustrating that God is talking to someone, Jesus, who's part of the Holy Trinity, who's always been there. He's saying that I will put you at my right hand and I will put your enemies under my feet. Right now, he's starting to understand that because uh, the crowd, he asks the question, how? David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Why would David address his own physical son as Lord? That doesn't make any sense. That would be like me addressing my son as Lord. It doesn't happen that way because I have authority over my son. My son does not have authority over me. And so him using that verse, he's signifying that Jesus was always there. Jesus has authority over me. He is the Messiah. He is the coming Messiah, and you guys should be so excited and so happy that he is here. You see, Jesus just blew their mind because he's saying that, yes, I am the man Messiah that you are expecting. But even more, I'm the God Messiah that you guys are expecting. See, because he was fully man and he was fully God. The fancy terminology we use for this is the hypostatic union. There's your seminary education for the day for free. The hypostatic union, this basically means that Jesus was or is fully man and fully God. You see, the promised Messiah was going to be both human and divine. This describes Jesus becoming the God incarnate through being born of a virgin, becoming a man, living a sinless and perfect life because he's God, identifying with us in our struggles and our temptations because he's a man, crying with us, laughing, being hungry, being thirsty because he's a man, dying on a cross because he's a man, but because he's God, he resurrected three days later. And the scriptures tell us that if you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in his death and resurrection, then you will one day be in glory. You will one day be in the resurrection. You will one day be able to be with God forever. I'm so looking forward to that day. You see, a man can't, any man can die on a cross. But only God can be resurrected from the dead forever. The wrong idea is that the Messiah is just the man. The right idea is that the Messiah is the God-man who came to reconcile all of creation back to God. Now Jesus has answered all these questions and he's answered the own question he's posed to the followers and the leaders in there and and he gives one final rebuking to the, the religious leaders of the time in the temple. He tells the followers, his followers, be weary, be aware of these guys, beware of them. They are not your friends. And how can you tell that they're not for you? Because when you look at your leaders, they're trying to show off their hand-tailored expensive clothes. They're trying to promote themselves over God. They like to be seen by all. They want to be seen as important. They want to be visible. They want to take advantage of the marginalized in the temple. They wanna show off their supposed holiness because they're hypocrites. Jesus is warning the followers in the temple, beware of these hypocrites, they are like wolves in sheep's clothing. This is the last denunciation that Jesus gives as he makes his complete break from the religious leaders and his public ministry ends right there. It's very interesting that the last act that he has in his uh, ministry to the public is calling out the false teachers and the terrible leaders gives a lot of responsibility to all of us as ministers of the word. And so Jesus now steps off his teaching platform, walks over to his disciples where they're standing and learning and amazed by everything that Jesus is saying and he's people watching, looking at what's going on in the temple and he sees in the distance where the uh, offering receptacle is. You see the offering receptacle was this, uh, this giant tuba shaped opening that was made of metal Uh, for you to drop your coins into. They didn't have paper money back then. They used coins. Uh, And so as people would walk in and put their offering in this receptacle, a lot of times they would literally throw it because metal against metal makes a loud clanging noise. And so the more clanging you heard, then the more pious and holy this person was that was giving all this money for the glory of God. Let's never mind that he was trying to make noises so people could be aware and give him attention. But even more importantly, Jesus sees an old widow come in and put in two copper coins. These two copper coins we talked about a denarius earlier. These two copper coins were one sixty-fourth of a denarius. It was everything she had left, and she gave it all. The word here in this passage, he, she sacrificially gave because she fully trusted in the power of God to provide for her needs, not her wants, but her needs. James McGowan says this, God measures giving not by what we give but what we keep for ourselves. You see, a lot of us, we don't give sacrificially because we don't know the scriptures. The scriptures tell us it's not for us to keep forever, it's for us to give back to God. We don't give sacrificially because we don't trust in the power of God. I'm worried about tomorrow, what if I get sick and I can't work or what if this happens, right? We don't trust in the power of God. We don't give sacrificially because we don't want to fully submit to the authority of God. Because in the end, we like stuff. Stuff makes us temporarily happy. Daniel Aiken says this, sacrificial giving honors Christ, even if the amount is small, but comfortable giving honors no one, even if the amount is large. Because when we give sacrificially, We are acknowledging God's power and his authority. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words that you give us in this section of scripture. For us to understand what awaits us in the resurrection. To understand what is our duty on this earth as your followers. What does it mean to love you, Lord? What does it mean to love our neighbors? Father, I thank you for all of those things being open for us to see the warnings that you give to the religious leaders for us as ministers of your word, as ambassadors for you to live into that. And so, Father, I just pray that we choose to live for you daily, that we choose to live a sacrificial life where we are willing to give it all up for you because you gave the greatest when you gave your son to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.